Let's pray. Father God, we are just so grateful that we have access to your throne. It's just so far beyond our imagination to, to come up with a God who would, after having the power to create through spoken word, would then, when his creation rebels against him, love them so much to send his own son to die for them and then welcome them into his throne room again. But you've done that. We have rebelled. We have sinned. And you've forgiven us. And you'll do it again next week. You are such an abundant Lord. And we thank you for that. We praise you. And I ask now, Lord, that as we turn to your word, to the work of Christ while he was here on earth, how it points us to the work that he's currently doing now while reigning in heaven. Lord, would you open our eyes? Would you help us to see what you've done in our own hearts? And would you move us forward in growth and to maturity? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you think of words like gospel and salvation, I wonder what comes to mind for you. If you have repented of your sin and come to saving faith in Christ, you might think of God's grace, of his forgiveness, of your status as an adopted child of God. If you're here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and remember that those are indistinguishable roles that he plays in our lives. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you likely have questions and, and more questions than answers than you're trying to figure those out. You're looking for hope. You're trying to figure out, is this real? What does gospel and salvation even mean? You wonder if God can really love you this, this much that he would give of himself. You're curious. Well, however you find yourself here and, and whatever nature your questions are, are taking, I'm, I'm sure most of us realize that we would if nothing else, benefit from thinking about it more. That we would benefit from contemplating God's love shown on the cross and the victory that we participate in through the resurrection of Christ. And we would find that oftentimes we, we stop short of both the treasure and the scope of the gospel as it applies to us. That we are, uh, imagine that we are on a an Arctic cruise, which after this week may be a little easier to imagine than, than most weeks. And, and we are sailing in the waters and we are going up and there before us is a gigantic iceberg and we are completely satisfied with this mountain of ice coming out of the water and we are completely satisfied with what we see, not realizing that 90% of this mass lies below the surface. And I think that's how a lot of us approach the gospel that we get really satisfied with the, with the part that is easily visible. 
And, and what is easily visible in the gospel is great. I'm not trying to downplay that at all. But in stopping short, we often miss the deeper things. Remember what the Lord says in Ecclesiastes. It is the glory of God to hide things and the glory of kings to find them. And that as we dig deep, we will see more and more the depth of God's love, the purpose of His will, and the glory of the gospel, and what it means that we're not just saved from sin, but that we are saved to newness of life, raised with Christ. This is one of the many reasons we are studying Mark. And, and doing so not so much in like a thematic sweeping, like let's just look at like the highlights of what we think are the great stories, but looking at every passage in Mark and seeing how he puts it together as a whole, that the Holy Spirit inspired a man named Mark long ago to tell the story of Jesus in this particular way. And the Gospels are notorious for stringing together several stories to teach a, a, a truth about Jesus. And, and these are stories which on their own have a lot of deep meaning. But they are brought together in such a way to help us see more clearly truths about ourselves and truths about our Savior. And this subtle but important, important teaching technique of the gospel writers, uh, I'm having a hard time talking this morning. I went on Blitz this weekend with the junior hires, reliving my glory days as a youth pastor from long ago and realizing that those days were long ago. So uh, just, just bear with me. If it sounds like I'm, I don't, I'm not having a stroke, I just am, am suffering from an all-nighter. Um, that's what's going on up here. Um, so the gospel writers, they have this technique, they bring together, and it requires a slow, careful read, and it's worth it. And in Mark 7, we have one of these areas where there's a, a contextual build in the text. And last week, we discussed the Pharisees coming to Jesus and saying, like, oh, you're doing it wrong. You didn't wash your hands, you filthy animals. And, and Jesus pointing out the truth about righteousness. And right after, here in Mark 7, that right after Jesus challenges their, them for creating unnecessary and unfruitful work instead of what God's word calls us to for righteousness, right after Jesus challenged their non-biblical traditions about what gives a person proper standing before God, Jesus travels to a distinctly Gentile region to minister there. Challenging not just the traditions and practices, but their view of who God loves and desires to save. It is not an accident that Jesus, right after this, this engagement with, with people who were making false claims about God's word, then goes to a very Gentile area. Mark 7 challenges us to not stop short of our freedom from legalism, to not be satisfied with that peak of iceberg sticking out of the ocean, but to dig deeper and to press towards the excitement of how he saves unlikely people and how we are sent to go to unlikely places. More simply put, the kingdom of God not only frees us from the work of religion, but gives us a passport, taking us out of our boundaries because of who we are following. 
It not only saves us from the work of religion, but gives us a passport, taking us out of our boundaries, not because it's fun to travel, but because of who we are following. And Jesus goes out of our boundaries. So let's read. If you haven't turned yet to Mark 7, verses 24, I invite you to do so now. And this, this is just, for me, this has always been one of the weirdest stories in the gospel. And we'll get to that. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take, what is, take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Here we have two stories of Jesus healing people, and we need to notice there's just a striking similarity in the structure of these two stories. Jesus enters an area, and someone comes to Jesus, and that person comes not asking for help for themselves, but begging, notice the word in both times, they are begging Jesus to help someone else. And then Jesus, instead of immediately helping them, there's something that happens. One, he has this this dialogue with this woman, which really throws us off if we're not careful. And then with the other, he takes the guy aside, touches his ear, spits, touches tongue, and then speaks in Aramaic. In both cases, the person who they were begging for is helped. And so there's a lot of similarities. There's just a, the structure of them is very similar. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of be talking about both at the same time. And so just be ready for that. It's going to be a little different than what we normally do. But what I want us to see is that following Jesus pushes and expands our boundaries. Because he, our Savior King, goes where we would not go. Following Jesus pushes and expands our boundaries because he, our Savior King, goes where we would not go. In this case, he goes to Tyre and Sidon. Not on any of our vacation plans. 
because you don't even know where they are. They're in modern-day Lebanon. This is an area, think of this, Jesus is the, the king of the Jews, is, is, the, is the placard at the top of his cross. He is Israel's Messiah. And he's going to a place that has never been in the boundary of Israel. Lebanon's talked a lot about in the Old Testament, but never in terms of God's covenant faithfulness to the people of Lebanon. It's the riches of Lebanon. It's the threat of Lebanon and Tyre and Sidon and their evilness. And Jesus, the king of the Jews, goes there. This place is distinctly Gentile, unmistakably Gentile. It was distinctly pagan. There's not a redeemable thing about it. So why would the Lion of Judah, the Holy Messiah of Israel, go there? Why would he ever go to such a place? And the, the, the most basic answer is, is because Jesus loves them. And God loves them. If you've been coming to Westchester for any length of time, this will sound like a broken record. God has a heart for the nations, and he always has. Remember the blessing to Abraham. Your offspring will be a blessing to just the nation of Israel, who you've never heard of. No. To the nations. And we see the nations over and over and over again through the Old Testament. This summer, we had, we had one of our global partners, Daniel, come and speak and he, he preached out of, out of Psalm, I think it was Psalm 67, the mandate that all the nations will praise the Lord. And it's not a vision of everyone from around the world taking a tourist trip to Israel and then getting saved, but it's a vision of the church going out. Remember when, when Peter gave his confession of Jesus, that he is the Christ, and Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The interesting thing about gates is, is that they're stationary. And so for a gate not to be prevailed means that who, whatever is going to conquer the gate has to go to and through the gate. And so the, the vision of the church from even there is that we would go to and through the gates of hell and all that they represent as a church, that we would not be stationary, but we would be mobile and active and going. So let us go. Let us follow a Savior who goes to undesirable places. And I want to ask you, what places have you found undesirable that need the gospel? What are the undesirable places that you need to go? And this isn't a push for you to get involved in the nursery, although do it. But there, have, have you thought of there being undesirable places in our city or undesirable people in our city, those who we would try to distance ourselves from, neighborhoods we've moved out of? And I'm speaking to myself with this too. And so what would we consider MLK an undesirable place? 
and go there to serve with Agape Pregnancy Center, reaching that neighborhood, reaching young families, not just to save babies from abortion, but to help young moms and young couples learn the gospel and live in the love of the Lord. Would we consider Highland Park Community Church, their work with Madison Elementary, their work with their summer kids stuff, their work with the new daycare center that's opening up, and how we could be involved, or just across the street, with the difficulty of going into a public high school. And not just flipping pancakes, which is great, and greeting kids for breakfast, which is wonderful, but to find ways to insert ourselves into the halls and classrooms of that school so the light of Christ can shine. Jesus absolutely goes places we would not go here to what would seem to be those outside completely of God's will by birth as they were Gentiles and by practice as they were deeply pagan. But he doesn't just go where we wouldn't go. He gives attention to those we'd look over. We have a Savior King who gives attention to those we would look over. And this is in two categories. The first is, is, is the, the unworthy. So here we have it. Jesus enters this house. He's hoping no one would notice. And not because he's a hipster who's trying to find the cool place that no one knows about, but he's just, he's just looking for a breather. So he gets in this house. Word spreads that he's there. And a Syrophoenician woman comes in. And, it, and the text is clear like she's, she's living in the region of Tyrene's side, and she's a Gentile, a Syrophoenician. Mark is driving home a point about her ethnicity. And he is making this unmistakable. And so she goes, she comes to Jesus begging, begging, begging for him to deliver her daughter from the demon. Keller points out, as he writes on this, that, that she's, not, she's not bold and courageous, she's a parent. Because what parent wouldn't do anything they absolutely could when their kid is in danger? She's not bold or, creation, or courageous. She's just a parent. She's just being a mom. And Jesus looks at her, and he says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What a jerk. Why would he say this? I mean, it's, it's like those commercials. Like, maybe Jesus just needs a Snickers. Like, maybe he's just hungry. He just needs a Snickers. And this is where we need to remind ourselves that we need to read Scripture deeply. And we need to work to understand what's in the text. We need to do that discipline. Because Jesus is not calling her a dog. And, and this is a developing country. I mean, some of you people treat your dogs better than you treat people. Like your dog has a nicer mattress than you do. But in developing countries, it, which ancient Israel would have been considered, dogs are only there to like eat rats and bite people who steal your stuff. They're not pets. They're not friendly. They're just filthy. They're out in the street. But here, the, 
a more literal translation would probably be puppies instead of dogs. Let the children be fed first. It is not right to take what's the children's bread and throw it to the puppies. So it's a little more gentle. The other thing we see Jesus doing here is he's actually speaking in a parable form. And it's hard for us who rely on our, on our subtitles too much because it, there's not a break here that says the parable of the dogs. That would be easier for us who, who rely so much on those. But Jesus, the teacher, goes into a parable, and it's a parable about the priority of salvation. It's picked up by Paul in Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to transform the ungodly, first the Jew and then the Gentile. This is about the covenantal purpose, that the covenant of God came to Israel so that the nations might know who God is. And so there's this, this seemingly unworthy, that she's not part of the first covenant. She seems to be excluded here from the first covenant. But it is not Jesus insulting her. It is Jesus saying, the first, the, right now I'm concerned about the, the people of Israel is where Jesus is going with the parable. And we'll come back to the parable. But then we go to the unable to speak. And this is down in the next passage. This group of people, we don't know how big it is, but it says they brought a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment and they begged him to lay his hand on him. In both cases, there is a person needing Jesus' help who had no ability to ask for themselves. One was a spiritual limitation. There's a young girl who's possessed by a demon. And the second is a physical limitation. This man has no ability to communicate for himself, to say, I need you, Jesus. I need healing. Thankfully, he has people around him. And there's a case to be made here for intercessory prayer, that we be lifting up the burdens of those we love, the burdens of our community, the burdens of those in need, that we be taking their requests and their pleas and we be going to God and even the begging posture of God, we need you, we need you, we need you. But there's also a point here to be made that is contrary to one of the American Gospels. That is, God helps those who help himself, who help themselves. Because here, God is, Jesus is helping those who are unable to help themselves. And think about it this way. How many of you helped God save you? How many of you who are Christians here this morning, you're like, you know what, it came down to it. The Lord just needed a little help, so I helped him save me. If you believe that, I want you to repent and read Ephesians 2 where we read that we were dead in our sins. We were following the prince of the power of the air. We were saved by grace. We were saved by grace. And we were saved by grace and not by works, as the text tells us in Ephesians 2, so that none of us can boast. So all of us have been helped by the Lord. All of us who are believers, who call on the name of the Lord, have been helped by God when we were unable to help ourselves. When it comes to your salvation, you did the work of a couch potato. And this is the love of God that you have experienced. Let us extend the same love of God that came to us while we were unable to do anything but rebel against him. Both the daughter of the woman and the friend of this group 
would be so easy to marginalize. But I can't do anything about it. And easier to marginalize or in the process of marginalizing, they'd be easy to ignore. Not my problem. I have enough stuff going on. I don't know what to do. And it becomes too easy for us to overlook hurting people. But Jesus doesn't overlook them. He sees them as people. He loves them. He cares for them. And there's so much noise of brokenness in our world right now. And there's so much pain and agony and so many people crying out for help. It can be really hard to know what to do. And, and so what we do sometimes, and I know I catch myself doing this, is we find ways to wash our hands of helping them. A few years ago, some really helpful works around charity came out. Uh, when Helping Hurts was one of them and Toxic Charity was another. And those are really helpful in saying that sometimes charity is part of the problem. Sometimes our version of charity is part of the problem. But, but another part of the problem that's come out of that is we read those books and we say, well, I don't know what to do. Anything I do is going to make it worse, so I don't do anything. Or we say, well, if, I want, if, if I'm going to help them in the way they want help, then that's wrong. And so I'm not going to do it. And we find a moral high ground to helping the hurting and we do this with a lot of areas of, of the Lord convicting us of sin through his word. And so what I want to tell you is instead of trying to wash your hands of it, pray about how you might, like Christ, pay loving attention to the pain and brokenness experienced by so many. Instead of trying to say, look, I, I, don't, need, I don't need to be a part of that. Instead of trying to find your way out of it. Pray and discern and act on how you, like Christ, can pay loving attention to the pain and brokenness that is experienced by so many. Because that's what he does. Our Savior King graciously gives what they need. He graciously gives them what they need. I mean, think, we, we've had, I, I, I didn't do a the best job of alliteration. And so if you're, if you're taking notes, just write that he graces them. He goes, he gives, and he graces. And so let's go back to the woman that, that Jesus apparently called a dog. He, he says to her, she's begging for her daughter's sake, let the children be fed, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him. She doesn't just walk away and be like, woof. You're not nearly as nice as people say. She doesn't start lecturing Jesus for him not living up to her expectations. She instead does what nobody else in the gospel seems able to do. In a faith-filled way, she answers Jesus' parable in the context of the parable. This is astounding. She answers Jesus in the context of the parable in a faith-filled way. And here's what she said. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat some of the children's crumbs. She's not asking for a smaller version of a miracle. She's not asking for like a, like a oh, well, Jesus, just like, 
just like wave your finger and do something. Like, I don't want to take from Israel. Just, just do something. She's not saying that. Well, here's what she's saying. Jesus, I know that you're the Messiah of Israel. I know that you're the Lion of Judah. I know that you are the King of the Jews. And so your priority is to the Jews. But I also know this. There's a whole heck of a lot of food on that table. I know the abundance of what you have, Jesus. And I know that my daughter can be healed while all of the children of Israel are fat and happy and full. She believes something about God's grace and power that we struggle with. And here it is, that he has a lot of it. A whole lot of it. She understands the priority. She understands who Jesus is. And she understands the abundance that God lavishes his grace and mercy. That he is abundantly wealthy in terms of grace and mercy. Think about this. Last week, we, we started out with a welcome where I, I got up and I said, how many of you have sinned so horribly this week that you deserve eternal separation from God. And, and all of us raised our hands, or nearly all of us. There, there were a few that I, I, I don't think they knew where I was going with it. God forgave you of that. And here's, I know that this week you did the same thing again. And so did I. And God forgave us. And next week it'll happen again. And then that'll probably be the last time. No. And God will keep forgiving you. He is abundant. He is abundantly powerful. And then Jesus does something new in Mark. He, he heals remotely. And he doesn't even vocalize the rebuke of the demon. He goes, because of your answer, that statement, that faith-filled statement, you can go, demon's gone. His power just seems in Mark to keep like reaching new highs where Jesus has thought the rebuke of the demon and it has worked. Jesus is not confined to a certain set of practices on how to work the miracles and the, the exorcisms of the demons. He's not confined to having to do it a certain way because he's above all of that. And he's above all creation. So everything has purpose. What a mighty Savior we have. So then we come to th this man. The, the people have come, this group of people, they're in the Decapolis and this is a familiar place in the Gospel of Mark. This is where the man who was possessed by a legion of demons went and testified about Christ. And the Decapolis, this collection of ten cities, was amazed at Jesus. And now Jesus is back. So they come, and they, they don't come saying, help me, give me this, give me that. They say, this man can't talk or speak, Jesus. Can you help him? They're begging Jesus. And Jesus does the opposite with him. He shows his grace, abundant grace and power with the woman. And here he's showing his personal time and touch. And it's, it's almost the opposite. With the woman, he reasons with her through a parable. 
And then he just says, all right, you can go home. She's good. Here, he takes the guy aside. He pulls this man away from the crowd so they're one-on-one. And he sets time aside for this man. And then he does what seems to be some sort of healing routine, but we've never seen it before. So as readers, we have to ask why. Puts his fingers in his ears. He spits and he touches the guy's tongue. He says, Ephatha, be opened, be unshackled, be unbound. Why would he do this? And then he, and he sighs in there. It's personal. And, and it's so interesting because earlier in Mark, like with the leper, Jesus touches the leper and the leper's healed. So why wasn't he healed when he touched his ears and his tongue? And he had to sigh and go, ah, Ephatha. Jesus is personal here. This man's deaf and he can't hear. And Jesus goes, huh? Huh? Be open. He lets the man know what he's going to be doing. Isn't that remarkable? He lets the man know what he's going to be doing. And then he sighs, and the sigh is significant. But it's not like Jesus going like, oh, I'm so tired of healing people. Actually, the original word is for more of a groan. Oh. But this wasn't a laborsome work for Jesus. It wasn't physically hard. So why would he groan? Isaiah 35. I'm going to read verses 4 through 6 of Isaiah 35. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This is one of those miracles. It's just unmistakably Isaiah 35. Jesus has healed this man and he did so knowing he was fulfilling this passage and that he would fulfill it in full, not just in part, namely the end of verse 4. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Jesus knew that he was coming with the vengeance and recompense of God, but not with a shield and a war horse to overthrow Rome and reinstate Israel as it should be and make it better than ever. But he came with the recompense and vengeance of God to be directed at him as he took up all our sin that he would bear it. Keller says this. Let me find the quote. Mark wants the readers to think about uh, Isaiah. And Isaiah says the Messiah will come to save us with divine retribution. But Jesus isn't smiting people. He's not taking out a sword. He's, He's not taking power. He's giving it away. He's not taking over the world, he's serving it. Where's the divine retribution? The answer is that he didn't come to bring divine retribution, but he came to bear it on the cross. 
Jesus would identify with us totally. On the cross, the child of God was thrown away, cast from the table without a crumb, so that those of us who are not children of God could be adopted and brought in. Put another way, the child had to become a dog so that we could become sons and daughters at the table. And because Jesus identified like that with us, now we know why we can approach him. The son became a dog so that we dogs could be brought to the table. He became mute so that our tongues could be loosed to call him king. Don't be too isolated to think that you are beyond healing. Don't be too proud to accept the gospel, what the gospel says about your unworthiness. Don't be too despondent to accept what the gospel says about how loved you are. We need to remember as we read what happened so long ago in ancient Israel that we are in what would have been thought as an undesirable Gentile pagan land. And our ancestors came from the same. We need to remember that our Savior is mighty and personal, that He is the King of salvation that he comes to us, that he died for us so that we could be called sons and daughters. Let, let us follow him as he works in us and through us. Let's pray as the worship team comes back up. Father, we are so grateful. Lord, we... God, you made us who were far off to be brought near. to be brought near by the blood of Christ who took your vengeance from us. Lord, thank you that you hear us when we beg and that you help us when we can't do it ourselves. When we are unable to help ourselves. You are a mighty God. You are a loving God. May we never forget it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.